as Pastor Curtis mentioned, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's as President Ronald Reagan coined it in 1984. And as many of you probably know, this annual observance coincides with the devastating Supreme Court decision that was made on January 22nd of 1973 that's come to be simply known as Roe v. Wade. And so a Sunday has been set aside since 1984 that is closest to that date to celebrate the sanctity of human life. That decision that was made over 40 years ago is what has in this country paved the road for abortion on demand. Most of you probably know, maybe some of you don't know or understand or haven't cared to understand the details, but one of the devastating things that happened on that day was the first step to say that laws may not prevent abortion in our country. Laws may not prevent abortion any time during the nine months of a woman's pregnancy. Laws may not be made that would prohibit abortion if the abortion is, quote, to preserve the life or health of the mother. And then the second devastating step was to define health as all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, the women's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient. So virtually any reason can be given to legally authorize abortion in this country. So for 40 years now, that has meant that any perceived stress in a mom's life is legal grounds for abortion. Which is why since 1973 there has been over 50 million babies aborted in our country alone. Over 50 million, over 3,000 every day. Over 3,000 every day. So before I begin today's sermon, I wanted to say just a few things. Three things up front by way of introduction. First, I know in a church our size that there are women here today in this service who have had an abortion or who have had abortions. And so I want you to know that my heart goes out to you deeply and that you specifically were on my mind all week as I prepared this sermon. I was thinking about you, though I may not know who all of you are, and wanting to be sensitive to you as we dealt with this very difficult subject. Perhaps one of the greatest blessings in my 
pastoral life was when years ago I had the privilege of ministering to some ladies who had had abortions and was given the honor of presiding over a memorial service for their lost babies. So I, I get that pain as much as it is possible for me to get that pain. Though I cannot comprehend the uh, guilt and shame and grief that you carry around with you. So I'm thinking of you, okay? And I love you. Second, the Bible, of course, today it's Psalm 106. The Bible has determined what I should say today because the Bible always has to determine what we say when we look at how to use this time for preaching. But when it comes to how to say it, and how to deliver this message, I've, I've considered not only those women who are here today who have had abortions, but I've tried to consider all of you. Tried to consider every life stage that might be represented here. Every, every stage of life you find yourself in. Every stage of struggle you may find yourself in. And I say that because I know that there are children that are here today. Uh, my children were here today. And I had the luxury of talking to my boys and preparing them for what we were going to talk about today, but I know some of you don't have the luxury of being prepared in that way, so I don't want you as parents, if you've got little ones who are here, to have any unnecessary anxiety about what this sermon is going to bring, so I want you to know that uh, I will speak frankly and accurately, but I'm also going to speak in a way that is sensitive to the range of people that we, we have here today. So I'm not going to be describing things in a graphic nature. There's not going to be images shown on the screen. So I, I want you to be able to relax and, and, and rest and actually listen without being on pins and needles if you've got your kids here. And then the third thing that I would want to say is, is to let you know that much of what I'm going to say today was gleaned just kind of came from behind and, and picked up a lot of the truth that was in a sermon that Pastor John Piper gave on January 22nd, 2012. So I'm not preaching his sermon by any means, but as I was preparing and reading lots of material and studying lots of Scripture this week, Psalm 106 was clearly what I wanted to preach on and I was so helped by how Pastor John Piper dealt with it that I gleaned much of what he presented in that sermon. So if you want to hear this sermon much better, <laughs> there you go. January 22nd, 2012. And so my hope this morning and my goal is to stir your hearts. Good preaching should always do that. Good preaching should rattle a soul. As it is faithful to God's Word, it should have the goal and the prayer behind it and the hope behind it that it would rattle people's hearts and rattle people's souls, that it would stir them and provoke them to examine themselves, to examine Christ, to examine their world in light of God's Word. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. 
If this goes well, your hearts will be stirred by the end of the sermon and you will be asking yourself, what now? What can my hands and feet and mind and heart, what can I, what can I do now that my heart is stirred? And so, what I'm going to do is if you're on the city, and if you're not, you can get on the city before you leave today, but I'll post a brief article tomorrow that'll give ideas and ways, five in particular, that you can actually do something should you find yourself with a passion and a heart uh, considering the state of abortion in our nation. So I don't want the sermon to go there much today. I want to stir your heart. And then I'll provide some of that tomorrow for some of you who may be sort of frustrated if something else wasn't, wasn't provided. So let's pray, and we'll look at Psalm 106 together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are perfect and great in all of your ways. And so, of course, we come before you today, uninterested in hearing from anyone else. And we ask that you would give us your word Give us your truth and it would crash into our souls and bear fruit. And the fruit that we ask for is the fruit we know you're after. And that is that you would be glorified and that we would be filled with joy. So God, we, we are hoping and want you to work for your glory and for the good of your people. And so we ask you to do that today in the time that we spend together. We pray these things in the great name of your Son, who is Jesus. Amen. So please turn to Psalm 106. If you, if you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one around you. Or if you have a translation other than the English Standard Version, which is what I'll be teaching from, and it may bother you to not be reading it word for word the way I am. There's some white Bibles around you there. And that is the English Standard Version. You're welcome to read that. Or if you don't have an ESV, you can can take that with you. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. We're going to go through it by bits and pieces and gain an understanding of what it talks about. But we're not going to read through it verse by verse as Pastor Curtis has already done that. For us. The goal of Psalm 106. Okay, the goal of Psalm 106 is to give the reader reason to praise. That is the clear goal. If we're getting inside the head of the psalmist here, why are you writing Psalm 106? Why is the Holy Spirit inspiring you to write this psalm in this way? And clearly his reason is to give the reader reason to praise. And I get that by looking at the bookends of the chapter. Look at the first three words and the last three words. What are the first three words? What are the last three words of Psalm 106? Praise the Lord. So whatever's in between, when this guy starts writing, praise the Lord. When he's done writing, I'm, I'm out of here. What does he want to leave us with? Praise the Lord. 
So he wants his readers to praise God. And so what he says in Psalm 106 is to give them reason to praise. Which, which is not just to say great things about God. You can say great things about God and you can, you can not mean the great things that you say about God. And that's not praising the Lord. Praising the Lord is saying great things of God and, and meaning what you're saying and feeling what you're saying. It's knowledge of God and who He is that provokes a response in you, a thankful, grateful worshipful response that praises God. You feel in your heart He is worthy of praise. So you don't think about what you're going to do next. You just praise the Lord. So it's a declaration of worship and it springs from a heart that knows and trusts God and feels real joy. You can't say praise the Lord frowning. You can say God is good frowning. I know it. I don't feel it right now. But you can't say, praise the Lord. Oh, praise Him. <laughs> well, you're not praising Him. He's not getting much out of that. Praise the Lord is springing from knowledge of God and you're thankful and grateful and joyful by what you know to be true about God. So, the goal of Psalm 106 is to give the reader reason to praise. So, what we find between these bookends, I think, is sort of surprising. If the goal is to give your readers reason to praise, this is not what I expect to find in the middle of this psalm. It's not the typical fodder for praise. It's not, I got the job! Exclamation point. To which your text responds, P-T-L. Exclamation point. It's good news. You got the job. It's not, she said, yes, exclamation point, to which we respond, praise the Lord. It's not, it's a boy, or, or it's a girl, or there's no sign of cancer. We get that. And, and that is the typical fodder for praise the Lord. But that is not what we find in Psalm 106. It's sort of surprising what we find. Because actually what we find is sorrow and sin and pain. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so you want to say to the author, you're going about this all wrong. This is not, you're seriously bad at giving people reason to praise. This is not how you do it. This is provoking praise 101. You don't talk about bad things. You talk about good things. I got the job. She said yes. It's a boy. It's a girl. There's no sign of cancer. This is all good news. And if you want people to praise God, that's what you say. And there's a lot of things you don't say if you want people to praise the Lord. And you're saying all of them, psalmist, 
And so it's sort of surprising. If his goal is to give his readers reason to praise the Lord. But we find out what he's up to right away in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Now what He's going to show is that God is so good and His love is so steadfast that in the middle of unimaginable sorrow and sin and pain, there's this constant whisper, steadfast love of God. And there's this truth of the goodness of God. And sin does not threaten the goodness of God. It does not threaten His steadfast love. God is faithful And as we read in other Psalms, His love endures how long? Forever. And so the psalmist wants us to see just how loving God is. God is so loving that people and individuals and nations and corporations can turn from Him and away from Him in unimaginable ways and God still loves and God is still good. That's what the author is trying to do. The reason for praise is that God's steadfast love endures forever. So let's see what he says. We'll come back to verses 3 and 4 at the end. In conclusion, we'll come back to verses 3 and 4. But let's first look at the long list of Israel's rebellion and failures because that's what we have here. A long list of their rebellion and failures. And so I'm going to pull them out and I'll show you what verse I'm getting them from. If you want to follow along or just listen, that's up to you. But look at verse 7. The end of verse 7. They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 14, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. Verse 18, they were jealous of Moses and Aaron. Verse 19, they made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. Verse 24, they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in the promise. Verse 28, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Verse 32, they angered God at the waters of Meribah and made Moses' spirit bitter. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples but mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. Two more. Verse 36, they served their idols. And verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. 
you hear the long list of the sins of, of these people. Rebellion, craving, jealousy, idolatry, despising God's gifts, unbelief, necromancy, complaining, assimilation among the nations, serving false gods, idol worship, sacrificing their children. Of course, the author could have kept on going. This is not an exhaustive list of the sins of Israel. There are many more sins that they committed. But this is the list that he gives. And he ends with one sin in particular. And we should ask ourselves, why does he end with this final sin? They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They killed their own children. Can you stoop any lower? They killed their own children. It's wicked to kill children. It's exceeding wicked to kill your own child. Can a people sink any lower than this? This is, morally speaking, this is rock bottom. It's as if the author is answering the question, how far down did these people spiral? And his answer is, all the way. All the way. Couldn't get worse. They spiraled all the way down. Let's read those verses in particular. Verses 37, verse 38, and verse 39. And then I will give four things to consider in light of these three verses. Four things for us to consider. First, let me read the verses, 37 through 39. This was as low as they could go. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Now four observations, four things to consider in light of the psalmist's final indictment. This is what he ends with in all of his indictments of Israel in this psalm. And here's four observations. Number one, the sacrifices they were making were their sons and daughters. It would be good for us to let that sink in. The sacrifices they were making were their sons and daughters. 
This was not the familiar practice of animal sacrifice that was common and even mandated among God's people. This is something completely different. This is human sacrifice. These were little boys and little girls. Little boys and little girls sacrificed, most likely to appease the wrath of some make-believe God. Some make-believe God is angry with us and His wrath will be appeased if we shed the blood of our children and show Him how serious we are to get out from underneath the wrath of this make-believe God. And so they sacrificed their own children. Something awful had happened to their hearts. Something awful had happened to their consciences where they were not just practicing this individually, they were practicing this corporately. Something had happened in the hearts and consciences to these people where it became acceptable to do something unimaginable. And I think that many of you Maybe along with me, when you read that, you think to yourself, how can this happen? How could that happen? Maybe you, have you heard of something horrible that's practiced even today, maybe in some remote part of the world? Some horrifying practice either today or in history past and you've heard of it and you've heard of Multiple people engaged in it and it becoming a, a corporately supported thing by a community of people. And you ask yourself, how is that even possible? How could people get to the point where no one is standing against that and it just becomes normal? How did they get to this rock bottom, morally speaking, where it became permissible to sacrifice their own children? And you've heard of cultural practices that are, and you're just dumbfounded that they are culturally acceptable. How is that possible? Now, I think that if the Lord tarries, in other words, if Jesus doesn't come back really soon, the generations ahead of us and down the line from us will look back and say of us, and say of abortion, how could they? Fifty million babies and counting. How could they? How could they cloak this with equality and a pursuit of rights How could this become an issue of reproductive freedom and equal rights between men and women? Friends, I hope you understand the thinking behind that. If there is an unwanted pregnancy, it is true that a man can just walk away, can't he? And if he's inconvenienced by it, And it's unwanted. 
He doesn't want to be burdened by this child. He can, and many men sinfully do, he can just walk away and be freed from the burden of an unwanted child. So we must, we say, give women the equal right. And if she has a baby that she doesn't want, she must have the freedom to walk away. Enter abortion. And 50 million dead babies and counting. So, it is illegal to take the life of an unborn child that is wanted by his mother. It is legal to take the life of an unborn child that is not wanted by his mother. Those are our laws. If mom wants this unborn child, then it's a baby. And to murder that child is murder and it's illegal. You'll be punished. But if mom does not want that baby, it is subhuman. And it is legal to kill the baby. That is law in this country. They were sacrificing their children. Number two. This blood by the psalmist is called innocent blood. It's innocent blood. In other words, this isn't the blood of criminals. When these children were being sacrificed, these were innocent children. It was innocent blood. Now we understand that vertically, no one is innocent. Right? We've got to speak er- vertically between man and God, and then there's horizontal. Okay, there is no innocence between man and God. We are all guilty. An infant is guilty before God. We are born sinners. We are all by nature sinners. It's why every human being that's ever been born since Adam and Eve, when given the choice to sin, has chosen sin. Every single human being. That's a lot of human beings. And not one has chosen to not sin. Why? Because it's in our nature to sin. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. We are guilty in Adam. Psalm 51, David acknowledges he was conceived in sin. He came forth speaking lies. Now an infant, it's just a matter of time, but an infant is incapable of manifesting their sinful nature. But as soon as they develop the required motor skills, they will sin. So there is no vertical innocence, but there is such a thing as horizontal innocence. And this is the blood that was being shed. Those whose blood was being shed had not committed any crime deserving death. Jeremiah said the same thing of himself in chapter 26, verse 15 of Jeremiah, where they wanted to kill him. And his great crime was that he was speaking bad things about the people. And he says, if you kill me, you're shedding innocent blood. He wasn't saying he was innocent before God. He was horizontally innocent. No crime had been committed that was deserving death. Infants, in this sense, are always innocent. Always innocent. God can take and give life as He pleases and as He does because He is the giver of 
of life, Job 1.21 tells us, but human beings may not take an innocent life. Lest we break the sixth commandment of God, you shall not murder. And an infant's life is innocent life. And it is a child. Size does not determine humanness or personhood. When you were in the womb, you were not the necessary materials that would one day become you. You were you. You were smaller than you are now. Does not make you unhuman. Any more than I'm more human than my son Peyton. Because I'm bigger than he is. Humanness and personhood is not defined by one's dependency on their mommy. No more should we call an adult who is dependent on a respirator, dialysis, the care of others, not human, not a person, a child. Innocent blood. Number three. When they sacrifice their children to pagan idols, they are sacrificing to demons, the author said. In verse 37 and 38, we read of idols and demons. Some of you may remember Paul uses the same language of idols and demons and sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 10, when he's writing to Corinth regarding the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And here's the parallel. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So this is what Paul is saying. In in other words, and it helps us understand Psalm 106, in other words, who... Who is behind any worldly system, whether it's religious or secular? Because we've got two worldly systems here. There was one in Corinth, and there was this one in Canaan, in Israel. Who is behind, do we learn, any worldly system where people ultimately submit themselves to idols, which is anything other than the one true God? They submit themselves to idols, which is anything other than the one true God, and then they act, behave, make decisions accordingly, and make, we all do, various sacrifices accordingly to get what they want. Who is behind that kind of a system? And the answer plainly told us is demons. It's demonic in origin and nature. And number four, he says in verse 39, and looking at verse 39, when children are sacrificed to demons, 
the parents and the priests are playing the whore. A strong language. The psalmist concludes in talking about what Israel has done. And he connects this and says they sacrifice their own children. And he says when they sacrifice their own children, they were acting like whores. There's a prostitution that's taking place. In the Old Testament, where we take Psalm 106 from, Israel is pictured as God's wife and God is pictured as Israel's husband. And they're in a covenant relationship with one another as a husband and a wife are in a covenant relationship with one another. And so idolatry in the Old Testament, idolatry, in other words, turning from God, turning from husband, following others, looking to others, worshiping others, being satisfied in others, that idolatry in your Old Testament is pictured as adultery. It's adultery. Or in extreme cases, like what we read in Psalm 106, prostitution. Playing the whore. This is what the author is is, is getting at. This is dishonoring God, being unfaithful to God, and getting paid for it. So it's bad enough to dishonor God, to disobey God, to be unfaithful to God, to commit adultery against God. And it is another level to do that for debased reasons like money or convenience. So I'll be unfaithful to God, I'll dishonor God, I'll disobey God, and I will bow down to, and the way I will be compensated is convenience. My lifestyle won't have to change. Now the psalmist says that's playing the whore. That's verses 37 through 39. And the parallels with abortion, I think, are pervasive. Children in the womb today are the sons and daughters that we read of in Psalm 106. These children are innocent of any crime deserving death. And the truth in our day is that everyone knows, as everyone knew this was going on in Israel, Everyone today knows or chooses not to know the gruesome ways in which this blood is being poured out. All of you either know or you consciously choose not to know. That kind of information knowledge is too accessible to us to not know. So we know. We know they are killing our children and are without excuse. John Piper said, and we can be sure that the demonic forces behind the abortion industry and behind the cultural fabric of so-called reproductive freedom 
and behind the otherwise inexplicable blindness to the daily violence against the weakest persons in the world, we may be sure that the demonic forces behind this are glad for every dead baby and every guilt-ridden mother and father and grandparent and church. And this is the downside of Psalm 106. Quite a downside, isn't it? This is the downside and its relation to abortion today. But, remember, that is not the main point of this psalm. That is not the main point of this psalm. This reality in rebellious Israel is not why the psalm begins and ends with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord! Look at the evil and the wickedness. Isn't that great? You should praise God. That's not what the psalmist is doing. So why does he bring all of this crud to the surface? Because his point is to highlight the steadfast love of God. How loving, how steadfast. I mean, we need to know. We need to understand that. You can't just say things like that. Well, his steadfast love endures forever. Well, I hear that, but help me to get that. Help me to really understand why is His love so great? Why is it so steadfast? How does that work? And the psalmist says, this is how it works. Let's talk about the rebellion and the failures of Israel. And let's look at the faithfulness of God and His steadfast love. Remember verses 1 and 2? Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? This is what we need. The steadfast love of God. And in the climate of our society, this is what we really need. The steadfast love of God. His love. His mercy. Listen to it in this psalm. In verse 8, they rebelled. But then it says in verse 8, Yet He saved them for His name's sake that He might make known His mighty power. Or in verse 10, He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Verse 23, Therefore He said He would destroy them had not Moses, His chosen one, stood in the breach before Him to turn away His wrath from destroying them. So God relented at Moses' prayer. Steadfast love. Verse 30, As the plague was spreading, Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. So God responded in mercy to Phineas' zeal for the Lord. And finally, verses 43-46, through Many times He delivered them 
But they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake, He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. So what we end up finding in Psalm 106 is over and over, time and time again, God passed over sin. How could He do that? Over and over and over, time and time again, God passed over sin. Even the sin of child sacrifice. How can a good God, a just God, a righteous God, when it gets to that point, not just make an end of a nation? How can a good and just God not send another flood? When it gets this bad and people are sacrificing their children or looking the other way or sweeping it under the carpet, how can God, who is just and right, how can He just pass over their sins? How can He just pass over our sins? And Paul wanted to answer that question. And Paul answered that question in Romans chapter 3. And he did it specifically in verse 25. This is what Paul said. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Because you see, the question is, I know what people have done. I know what God's people have done. I know what Israel has done. I know what I've done. I know my sin against an infinite God. And how can God, if He is just and right, not punish my sin. Because if He just lets it go, or He just sweeps it under the carpet, or He just sort of winks at it, or looks the other way, then He's not a good God, and He's not a just God. He's an evil God, and a wicked God. So how does God pass over these sins? Doesn't God have to punish that sin? The answer is yes. He does. Which is why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. To be a propitiation. That means a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Jesus was punished. Jesus was punished. died for it. 
every single one of you. You and your sin will be dealt with. And friends, not a single one of you will escape that. And you are deluded to think that you can take care of it yourself. Amen. And you're deluded if you think you can do enough good things to erase your sin and tip the scales in such a way that you're qualified to spend eternity in heaven with an infinitely good God. Your sin will be dealt with. And either you will be punished for your sin or Christ was punished for your sin. And those are your only two options. And so if you go to your death and stand before God at judgment without Jesus... you will be for all eternity an object of God's wrath. And it will be good, and it will be right, and it will be just. But if you go to Judgment Day with Christ, and this is what that means. It means faith and repentance. It means relying on Christ and taking hold of Christ and confessing and admitting that you are in infinite trouble before God, that you are a guilty sinner, that you have no way out of this trouble and to plead for mercy before God through Jesus Christ and to rely on His work as punishment in your place And it means repentance. It means turning from sin and the ways of this world. So please don't tell me that faith for you means anything other than complete and total submission to Jesus. If you really believe that He died for you, and if you're really relying on His death, then you will find that you will be utterly consumed with pleasing Him every day. And obeying Every letter of His Word. And Christ was sacrificed on behalf of His people. So we must turn to Christ. We must depend on His mercy. And we must depend on His steadfast love. God has passed over much sin, hasn't He? God has been very patient with you and with me. God has been very patient with our nation. Now there is a biblical reality. And that is that you reap what you sow. And we have not sown well. And we are reaping And we will reap. And we must turn to Christ. But I would say, for those who plead, as I have thought, pleaded for God, please bless 
America. For those that may think that the clock is ticking, right? It's only a matter of time before God judges us for our participation and indifference to these sins. It's only a matter of time before God is going to judge us for what we've done. But friends, understand, we are now under the judgment of God. God is judging us. We are reaping what we've sown. And you ask, how are we reaping what we've sown? How are we being judged right now? And the answer is, 50 million missing babies. is the consequence already experienced. 50 million babies that we can't cuddle and kiss and care for and and feed and nurture and watch grow up. Gone. With God. Never with us on this earth. And we are not a better people and we are not a better place because of their absence. We're already under the judgment of God. Remember how God judges so often. You want to go that way? Okay. Okay. I told you, obey me and honor me and it will go well for you. And you will learn. If you choose to disobey and dishonor God, it will not go well for you as an individual and it will not go well for you as a nation. So what are we left to plea for? The mercy of God. Psalm 106 becomes pretty important. And we remember the steadfast love of God. So in conclusion, verse 3 and 4, because we might ask ourselves now the question, what do we do now with our lives in this country? What do we do now? I mean, when you have sinned grievously and you know what you deserve and you have received the mercy and steadfast love of God made possible and secured by Jesus Christ, what do I do now, and verses 3 and 4 answer that fundamentally. Maybe not as specific as some of us would like, but fundamentally, God has passed over my sin. He's pardoned me of my sin. Here I am in this country. What do I do now? Verse 3 and 4. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. So what do you do? Know God, pardoned by God in a sinful world. Verses 3 and 4, you obey God and you ask for help. Simple. You can work that out in a million different ways, but fundamentally, a Christian is a person who obeys God and cries out for help. Observe justice. Who do righteousness at all times? Friends, are you concerned with doing righteousness at 
all times? Do you have a compartmentalized Christianity? Do do you save some categories of your life for you and not for God? Are you consumed with personal holiness? Do you want to be righteous at all times? Is this even a desire of your heart? Is it on your radar? Do you understand that the great things that you do for God are living a righteous and holy life no matter what He gives you? Do you have grandiose ideas of great things that you want to do for God and how you will impact the kingdom and in the meantime, you neglect the great thing you're to do for God and that is to take whatever He's put on your plate and do it for the glory of God and to honor Him day in and day out. Are you consumed with that? Now, if you are, you know what I know and that is you need help. That's verse 4. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Help. I can't do this justice without scaring some of you this cry for help. But this is a cry for help. This isn't a tag at the end of your prayer. And Lord, help me. That's That's not what we're talking about here. You're not desperate enough. You think you've got this down or nailed or crying out for help. Psalm 119, I think 106. David says, I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I hope in your words. Why does he do that before dawn? Because before he talks to anybody, he knows he's going to meet people. And he knows he's going to be tempted to say things and do things and think things. And he knows his day is not going to go as planned. It's going to be a big mess. And nothing's going to go right. And people aren't going to like him. And someone's going to say something hurtful. And there's not going to be any money in the bank again. So he's going to be tempted. He knows that. So what does he do? He rises before dawn. And what does he do before he rises before dawn? Well, I'm sure he has his devotion. I'm sure he reads his morning and evening. I'm sure he does the right things. But you know what else he does? He cries out for help. John Bunyan said, He who runs from God in the morning seldom finds Him the rest of the day. And it's true. Help me. God, help me. Righteousness. Oh God, I've learned that doesn't come easy. That doesn't come natural. It's possible now by your Spirit. But this is not easy. I need help. So let's close with reading two things. The first, a secondary resource, a quote from R.C. Sproul, and then I'll end with a, the primary resource and reread verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 106. R.C. Sproul said, If the slaughter of millions of unborn babies is to stop, the church must once again become the church. Those who hide behind the idea that the church should never speak to political issues have missed the scriptural accounts of what we would call prophetic criticism. 
It may have been politically incorrect for Nathan to confront David over his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. It may have been politically incorrect for Elijah to confront Ahab for his sinful confiscation of Naboth's vineyard. It may have been politically incorrect for John the Baptist to challenge Herod the Tetrarch's illicit marriage. In these and other examples from sacred scripture, we see representatives of the church not trying to become the state, but offering prophetic criticism to the state, despite the potential consequences. The church is not the state, but it is the conscience of the state, and it is a conscience that cannot afford to become seared and silent. The principal reason for the existence of any government is to maintain, sustain, and protect the sanctity of human life. When the state fails to do that, it has become demonized. And it is the sacred duty of the church and of every Christian to voice opposition to it. And Psalm 106, verse 3 and 4. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us through your word, through your spirit, exactly what we need and everything that we need for life and for godliness. God, there is much in this world that we know we ought to say no to. And there is much in you that we ought to say yes to. But many of us find ourselves frequently and ashamedly soft. God, we ask that you would convict us of our sin. God, that you would make us uncomfortable in our sinful ways. That you would move in us and make us a people who by your help do the impossible. And that impossible thing is to live lives pleasing to you. So God, we plead again for your mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we stand before you righteous with His righteousness and His pardon. But God, we ask that you would root out the ugly sin that still remains in us and clings for dear life that you would be glorified in us as a people, in us as a church. God, if you are willing, in us as a nation. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.